Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, listeners. My name is Leah Lepkin, and I am a Master's of Environmental Management candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm here today with George Marshall, who recently published Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. George is the founder of the Climate Outreach Information Network, COIN, a charity specializing in public engagement around climate change. Mr. Marshall, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for having me there. For the listeners who have not yet had a chance to read your book, don't even think about it. Can you give us a two-sentence blurb? Yeah, that's what they call the elevator pitch, isn't it? It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of hard because I'm trying to disentangle one of the most complex social psychological issues of our time. But I will try and give two sentences. The first is the question, and the question is why here we are 20 years, 25, 30 years talking about climate change. Do we still seem to have such a low level of public ownership of this issue? And why has the ownership we do have become so consistently grounded in um, a relatively small number of people saying it exists and a small number saying it does not exist and there's large space in between with strong political allegiance for that. So trying to understand what is going on with this? Surely we should get this. And in a way, the answer that I come up with here is that, of course, it's not being decided on the basis of the science. It's not climate change does not exist for people in terms of the evidence, however strong that evidence is. It exists for people in terms of the socially constructed narratives that we have around it. That therefore means that when those narratives become firmly embedded, it's very hard for them to be shifted by new evidence or new research. They tend to become more entrenched because they become shared between people. Now we have a situation where we now have intergenerational narratives about climate change, so ways that people are now continuing to think and hold it and sharing with the people around them. That means that those then become the life and essence of the issue rather than the true and major threat that it represents. Since this book is, to some extent, about carefully selecting methods of communication, how did you come to select the title? Every communication is a cooperation. Every book is a cooperation. The publisher liked the title. I went with the publisher. But there's more going on than that. The idea of having a a snappy title, uh, like don't even think about it, and then the specific language of saying why our brains are wired to ignore climate change was not my first choice. But the idea was that by talking about how we think about climate change, we might be able to speak to a larger audience than we would just about climate change. But I'm very careful in the book not to talk about climate change. I have a a chapter right at the very, very end when I talk about what it is and what it means. But for most of it, I'm talking about something much more interesting, which is not not to say climate change isn't interesting, but I mean maybe much more engaging or fresh, which is how, how do we come to terms with new and challenging issues, especially ones which are so difficult to define as, as this one. So really it's The book is meant to be speaking to a broader audience of people who are interested in how our brains operate, how we come to decide on things and how we come to ignore things. But the title also, Don't Even Think About It, is focusing on one of the key themes of the book, which is that denial of the people, what we call denial, the people who go out there and say climate change is not happening, 
is actually really a minority. The real denial, we call it small d denial, are people who know about it but simply just don't talk about it. There's widespread collective silence of people who are not engaging with the issue. And that is much more interesting and challenging. At least the people who are out there openly saying that they don't accept it are people who are in some ways politically dealing with it and, 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 and talking about it. It's really the large area of people in between who you ask them and they'd say, yeah, climate change is a problem. Yeah, I think the climate's changing. It's possible we're doing it. They accept an awful lot of it. But if you go and ask them, what are you concerned about? Without telling them about climate change, give me a list of the things you think are the big issues, the thing the president should be working on, what, you're, what you want to vote on when there's an election. They're not talking about climate change. That's the issue of not even thinking about it. For many people, including myself, it seems logical that the increase in extreme weather events around the world will raise consciousness about climate change. However, your research uh, presented in the book suggests differently. Why are extreme natural weather disasters not raising widespread conviction in climate change? I don't think, I don't think my own work on this is strong enough to argue that, it's, that that will not be the case. Clearly, people are aware that the weather is changing, and clearly this is something which increases the salience of climate change as a way that, that, that people may come to accept it. But I think what I'm suggesting is that the relationship between the two is complex and, and not always possible to predict and not always, and not always certain. There is evidence that when across a country people experience uh, extreme weather that there is more of an inclination to believe in climate change. I think what interested me, however, is that when people are directly affected by extreme weather events, they also have a number of reasons for not accepting it. Or maybe more the point, which is an important theme of the book, but it's not about what they accept or don't accept privately, it's what they are seen to publicly hold as a view on it. I did a string of interviews in both mid-Texas and New Jersey, both of which had, a few months previously, had major weather events in Mid-Texas, the town of Bastrop, where a third of the town had burnt down in um, fires, wildfires, following uh, historic drought. Um, And in New Jersey, where um, Hurricane Sandy had had absolutely smashed apart the seafront communities. And that was where I went and asked people where, you know, their their towns were still, still had curfews. They still had large areas of kind of boarded up shops and smashed houses. In neither case, even with people who accepted that climate change was an issue and was happening, would they admit to the fact that they had talked about it with people. In fact, people could not recall the last conversation they'd had about climate change with anyone. And when I tried to understand why this might be, of course, it, 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 well, it, it became quite obvious why not, that if you have made the decision to stay somewhere and to reinvest, to rebuild your house, that is an act which is very much investing in a positive view of the future. It's what psychologists would call an optimism bias. People who take gambles, and of course it is a gamble, you're gambling that this is not going to happen again in the foreseeable future, are very much inclined to overestimate the chances of their success. It stands to reason. So you have a whole society of people where they're saying, let's all pull together, we can rebuild, we can reconstruct, we can make it bigger, and we can make things better than they were before. That is not a situation which people are going to be welcoming a narrative which is saying, you know what, what you're seeing now is just the beginning of something which could get way, way, way worse. Why would they? Of course, remember, the people I'm speaking to are ones who stayed. There are also quite a few people who just like threw in the towel and went. It may very well be that they'd say something different. But when people stay and they say, 
let's all pull together, let's all do something new, or when the storm passes over. Remember, you know, we are, we are very, we are long, our psychology has been long evolving. And part of the things which are built in it is a very strong capacity after major weather events, because human history has been about coping with major weather events, to pull together, rebuild, reconstruct, and start again. So it is unfortunate for us that this major problem, climate change, is coming in the form of extreme weather events, because this is exactly the kind of issue that psychologically and socially we are adapted to recover from and move on from. Very interesting. Thank you. You break down in your book and challenge nearly every method environmental organizers, campaigners, and professionals have used to communicate about climate change, I would say. In your book, you say, the answer to the partisan deadlock and public disinterest starts with finding new messengers rather than finding new messages. Who would you point to as the new fresh messengers for climate change? I want to say, first of all, that the reason that I do this is because within the environment movement, of which I'm a proud member, uh, I don't wish in any way to be undermining anybody's, anybody's work. I think we've done great work. But within the environment movement, uh, we have had an overwhelming dependence on the idea of a primacy of a message. As if, if we can find the right mix, the magic mix of words and images which manage to speak to people, engage them, we can move things forward. The danger is, of course, that what happens is that our perception of what's the right words or right mix is entirely built on our own values and our own idea of what we think works. We are who we are. We're not going to be in a good position to evaluate what a, you know, what a, um, you know, a conservative Baptist in Lubbock is going to think about <laughs> is going to think about something when we are based in a, you know, in a liberal intellectual environment here in, in say, in Yale. We're, we're not going to do that. So. Um, but we seem to have this idea that we can, if we pack it up nicely and we focus group it, it will work. What we're not realizing is that the primary message is conveyed by, by the communicator, probably more than the message. So when we look to see who is saying something, we're looking there to see what the cues are for whether this is somebody whose values are the same as my own or whether it's someone I should trust. And this does raise an issue, for example, as to whether even with the best language in the world, Al Gore could speak effectively across political boundaries, especially in this very partisan environment, for example. The question is whether there are communicators of an equivalent strength to, to Al Gore, who's a very good communicator, on the right, and the answer is no, they're not. I do see interesting and exciting people speaking out in the evangelical community. There are leaders like uh, Richard Sizick, um, Joel Hunter, who I interviewed for the book, who are conservative evangelicals, um, amongst conservative politicians. Um, Bob Inglis, of course, immediately comes to mind. Well, I, I say of course, but I mean maybe that's just because I move in circles where we know this. And, and Bob was the um, rep for Carolina, I think South Carolina, and he got, he got thrown out in a Tea Party ousting. And he's very been going around very strongly. He's very conservative indeed, and he's been going around very strongly promoting climate change values. But these people are unusual and exceptional. I think the answer that we, the, the answer to your question is that I see people who are trying to do this, but we need a lot, lot more. The priority for myself and my work, and I think for the wider, for the people who are concerned about action on climate change, who are interested in doing this, is to find ways that we can encourage and enable new communicators from new constituencies. 
um, to to go out and yeah to go out and to speak in their own values. What I think is very important is to recognise that when you're trying to build in new audiences, just as similarly, if you're trying to build with uh, you know audiences of people of colour or indigenous communities, or the kind of work which I've done for many years, but really your most important role isn't often not as the person goes and does the talking, but as the person who facilitates and enables other people to do the talking. That's where we need to shift, I think. How did, if at all, your findings about psychological realities inform how you wrote the book? Uh, did you incorporate the findings into your writing style or structure? Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, I think as a, I think if you're going to talk about communications and you're going to say we need to communicate differently, I think that you have to do good communications yourself. Um, I tell you something which I did, which I think is very important, is that my book went through a very intensive peer review process, both peer review in terms of the content and the arguments, but especially in terms of whether it worked or made sense to people. I ran it past a lot of people, including people who are not professional climate change people, and I said, do you like it? Does it work? Does it interest you? Does it hold your attention? Does it move you forward? Good communications is always tested. I was amazed. I have to say I'm amazed that people write books and that they then just send it into a publisher and they don't think about getting other people to read it critically. And that's why so many books are dull and incomprehensible. And I was, I was vicious with my changes. I dropped whole chapters. Uh, I completely rearranged the order and so on. I did try to write it with a mind to speaking to a wider set of values, but I think I'm sort of resigned to the reality that probably um, conservatives are not going to read my book because it says because it's about climate change. And also because it would be disingenuous for me to pretend to be anything other than I am. I'm not going to write a book and pretend that I'm not uh, somebody who has progressive left values and background in the environment movement. So I hope that there are people out there who might be interested in it. Certainly I wrote it, I wrote it with a view to respecting people of different views. I tried very hard to write something that was not partisan. I tried very hard to write in a, with a, a respect and a sense of humanity, even of people who I strongly disagreed with, even people who dedicate their careers to attacking and undermining my own work. Partly because I think that that's the spirit I'm trying to represent in the book of one of understanding understanding and respecting the fact that there are differences even if you strongly disagree with what people say. I mean, you have to, you have to, you have to act out what you say. And I must say that in the editing process, there was a few kind of cheap jabs that I made at people who I disagreed with that got cut quite rightly by people looking at it and saying, you know what, that just looks mean. I said, yeah, you're right, it does look mean. I was being mean. I thought I was being funny, but you're right, it reads badly. Um, the spirit I've, been, I've tried to build into it is the idea that we can learn from each other in ways. And that I remember it was very much one of the principles of Mahatma Gandhi when he was fighting against my own people, indeed my own family. My own family was a British Empire family for independence of India. That you could often learn the most from people who were your opponents by just talking with them and listening to them. And I really tried to build that principle into a book, long interviews with, with people who had a different view. And indeed, as I said in the book, the most interesting views came from other people. I think finally, and this is just more general, um, general guide for people who write books, I went through on the principle of cutting everything which I felt slowed it down, made it boring, or made it too long. So I ended up with a very tight book in which with some sadness, a lot of good material had to be cut. 
But I had a background in making documentary films. And therefore, the process when you're making documentary film is the same. You get your rough cut, you show it to people, they look at it and they just say, that bit, great footage, lovely, doesn't work, drop it. You have to do that. You have to be tight. You've only got, you know, an hour and a half to hold people's attention. Same thing with a book. You know, people don't want to read that much. None of the chapters are, I think the longest chapter is seven pages. So Don't Even Think About It explores how we deal with uncertainty, death, disaster, religious conviction, enemies, worry, and blame. How has the process of researching for and writing this book changed or challenged you personally? I loved having the opportunity to travel around America. I loved having the opportunity of having two years out as a sabbatical to step away from my practical work, which is doing communications design, to actually just spend time listening. Listening was the big change for me. Now I'm on a book tour. I'm in constant talk, talk, talk mode. But um, it's wonderful just to listen, just to ask people to tell you about who they are and what they are. And I think, for me, what became much more strongly reinforced in the process was this idea of really listening to people's identity. Just saying, you know, I I met people I'd never normally talk with, like a whole bunch of Tea Party people in Texas or evangelicals or climate change deniers. I had a a great day, which didn't make it into a book, actually, of going in California to a custom car meet, like one of these huge things where people get their vast, souped-up custom cars together. And you can imagine kind of, you know, guys who do this. Um, Just going around and just chatting to them, trying to understand, getting people to talk about what they love. I think it's very powerful. Like, what do you love? What makes you proud? What makes you who you are? There's something, you know, for example, I, I spoke with people at Shell Oil, too. And my first question was saying, what do you love about working at Shell? Like, what makes you proud to work for this company? But really listening to what people said, understanding and respecting what people find pride in what they do, even when it's something which might be destructive. But also understanding that by asking that question, you get to the essence of what it is which might motivate them or move them to change. So rather than saying what you do is evil, what you do is wrong, of saying saying those things which you find pride and identity in are things that you can build on to do things differently. So that was, that was indeed an eye-opener for me. Just having a chance also to meet some great folks, because you know, when you're writing a book, you can get to see some people um, who you might normally never have access to. It's fascinating. Thank you. Climate change, science, advocacy, and politics have evolved over the past three decades. What role has new media and the increased interconnectedness of people through various technologies played in this evolution? And what role do you think they'll play going forward? I have to stress I'm not an expert in this. I'm somebody who's more interested in the background theory of communications than the actual different forms of media for getting it out. But it is clear in terms of that background theory that some of these changes are very significant in in different ways. The first thing with new media is that it has hugely amplified the the potential for peer-to-peer communications. As I say, climate change is held as a socially socially owned and socially shared attitude or narrative. That means that these new media that allow people to share within their own personal networks information, stories, um, pieces of news are very, very powerful for building shared values and attitudes. Never before have we been in a situation where uh, an individual newspaper article or YouTube clip can be shared between thousands, sometimes millions of people. And of course, when it does get shared, 
it's not just distributed, but it carries with it the authority of a peer referral. That's to say, somebody, somebody I know, somebody I like, maybe like it's you, Leah, maybe if you're my friend, you send me something, and I go, right, Leah likes that. And of course, then it becomes, it has the qualities of something which has been authorized and approved by a fellow in-group member. So that's very, very powerful. I think that's certainly something which politically has, has contributed to the strength for which different political views hold different, uh, different views hold different attitudes too, because it reinforces existing identities. And of course, that's the whole danger too, which is that it can make things more polarized. It can create, a, it can create these very, very strong echo chambers where people are hearing things entirely within their own, within their own circles. People can become come to o- feel that their own views are overrepresented. Again, this is, a, this is a common condition of climate change, where people think that there are more people who hold their views than, than do. And the converse is also true. But if you hold a dissenting view, for example, if you are someone who's conservative, who believes very strongly that climate change is a threat, you can feel that your views are less represented than they are. Because through all of these new social media, you're being constantly bombarded with the views of a very loudly outspoken views of other people. You might not realize that actually you're my, you might be in a minority, but a significant minority, because those views are not being allowed space. I think there's a way that social media kind of like blasts out dissenting views. It really enforces conformity. Um, I do think also what's very interesting with this, having just written a book, is recognition that books are no longer a primary vehicle by which ideas get out into the public realm. They're still important, and they're still like a, you know, it's like a, it's like a kind of a flagship product, as it were. It's a thing where you put all of your ideas down. But I have no doubt for, for myself, the most powerful way of me disseminating my views is probably things like this, this podcast that'll be put around, or YouTube videos, or articles which appear in the papers. So we're dealing with a much more distributive media now. I hope we'll be friends and we can share things on social media, George. <laughs> I hope we can. I'm sure we can. Okay. <laughs> Climate deniers are actually very effective communicators, you point out capitalizing on many of the principles you suggest climate action advocates use. Why is this the case? I think climate deniers, let's, let's be careful of the word denier. Denier is a, an emotional word. It's a frame, of course, although activists deny it, it does bring in the frame of Holocaust deniers. Um, in my own book, I'm careful with the word. I don't use deniers for people in the general public who just don't accept the science. I'm inclined to call them skeptics or unconvinced. But I'm happy to use the term deny for people I think are professional contrarians. I know they don't like the word and they'd like to be called other things, but, but I think that's what they are. I think they're actively denying stuff, but they know very well that the, the, where, where the science sits on it. Um, and one of the things that from their point of view, of course, that gives them the upper hand is that they don't have to be bound in any shape or form by fact. So what they do is that they do what good communications does, which is that they start by thinking about what is the emotional impression they want to make, who are they speaking to, what are the values of the audience, and then they just pull together the arguments that they need to fit it. That's a very much easier situation when people, for example, who are science communicators who are dealing with complex and sometimes uncertain, sometimes even contradictory information, thinking how do we shape this in a way which is still nonetheless honest to the research because deniers don't need to be honest to the research. In fact, they don't even need to be consistent in any way. 
quite often what happens with climate change denial is that you get pieces of evidence that are entirely contradictory. Someone saying that actually the world isn't warming at all because the, the research, because the um, temperature measurements are wrong. Somebody who's saying uh, actually the world is cooling. Someone who's saying actually it's sunspots. Somebody who's saying no, it isn't. It's volcanoes. Somebody who's saying ah, but yeah, but the water vapors keeping the temperatures down. Who, who knows what it is? And all of this stuff is contradictory, and it doesn't matter. Because they're not actually concerned in the end with what the science says. They're concerned with the impression it generates, which is one of the fact that this is um, a myth which has been concocted by enemies. And that's, of course, that's the other thing which makes them powerful, is that they are working within the bounds of a very familiar, almost mythic narrative structure, which is that a group of recognized enemies who are already their enemies from previous struggles are... Um, conspiring in order to fulfill their political goals and are creating this false issue in order to um, in order to take away their freedoms and and you know challenge their way of life so that's a very powerful story so I think they do outmaneuver I think of course they outmaneuver in terms of talking to conservatives because that's where they come from so in other words there's a whole world out there that environmentalists who are mostly left liberal do not understand or know very well um, that they understand very well. So not surprising they move into that space and they do it very effectively because they know what those values are, they know how to trigger them, they know how to speak to them. When I've spoken with professional denier communicators also, I remember one of them said to me, he said like, well, whilst you guys were off there writing your reports and doing your UN stuff, we were out there on talk radio. Like, they know how to reach people. So there's a way that they're actually much more astute. There's some very, very smart people in there who are very good at what they do. That's why I say that one can learn a lot from talking to them. I think also that they have, in a way, a much more consistent position. I think that the left becomes much more, well, environmental movement, which is in itself in kind of peculiar political situations, although I say it's kind of left. It's also got business interests. It's also attempts to be apolitical. So there's a lot of kind of internal divisions there between what we're saying and where we're saying. And, you know, and we're trying to make for change. It is much harder to make for change than it is to block for change. Blocking for change just says, you know what, this is all rubbish. You don't have to believe this. You don't have to do anything. Well, that's an easy argument. You've got everything lined up behind you. We're saying we need to change. When people say, well, what is the change? When you get into rows amongst each other about what the change looks like, it all seems confused and, and you know, the dissent starts to rise and you're trying to ask people to change what they do and that's, that in itself is difficult. I do find, though, that underlying it all that... Environmentalists do not understand that we need to speak to people's real core values about what makes them happy, what makes them proud, what gives them a sense of identity. But they tend to be obsessed with this idea about how do we bash people over the head with the severity of the science. And I think that climate change deniers, whilst they do mobilize science in this kind of all their, their own half-baked science in order to communicate stuff, but actually they're much more adept at speaking to the sense of who you are, what you love, your sense of family, your sense of national pride, patriotism, identity community values, these kind of life-affirming qualities, which are, in the end, what builds people's identity, what motivates. Towards the end of the book, you propose an approach that takes lessons from religion, a cognitive challenge in, in our secular society, I would say. Can you discuss your vision of how this might take place? I want to be really clear that climate change isn't a religion. I have to say this endlessly. Climate change is not a religion, never should be a religion, cannot be directly compared with religion. It's a science. 
and it's based in science and hard evidence-based science with all of the rules which go with that. I think also it's important for people of faith that they understand that what they have is something special, which speaks to a which speaks to a deep sense of spiritual identity, which of course climate change never will. So let's be very clear about that. At the same time, I also recognize that that there are things that can be learned. Part of a problem with climate change is that because it comes from being a science, we we have tended to remove out the emotional components that are required for us to hold and to share belief. But in the end, what makes change, what makes people want to change is something which comes in the form of a socially held belief. Although, because belief is associated with religion, I actually tend to use the language conviction. A conviction which is held. I'm convinced of this. I've seen and heard enough. Now I'm convinced we need to do something. This kind of language. Well, religions have been struggling with that for thousands of years. And the religions which are now the dominant religions are the ones which have been the successful ones in finding the formula of how to do that, of dealing with things which require people to make change in their life, require people sometimes to make personal sacrifice, to do things they don't want to do, or to not do the things that they do want to do, in the interests of future future rewards which are uncertain. I mean, even though I know that religions offer, in theory, offer salvation, there's no guarantee of that. First of all, there's no proof of it, but also, secondly, no religion says, well, if you do these things, you're guaranteed a place. There's always the, the uncertainty as to actually whether, whether the, the Godhead will, uh, will award them that. So they're dealing with issues which are very hard too. Some of them also, as I said in the book, especially talking to evang- evangelicals, have very, very powerful models of building social movements. Evangelicals are interesting because they go out there and they fight the whole time in the marketplace for ideas and followers. They're not like the Catholic Church, say. They don't have an infrastructure. And one of the people I was speaking to was a guy called Joel Hunter who'd created his personal church into being 10th largest in, in the country. So Joel gets climate change, and I said, Joel, tell me what you've learned from your church, what you've learned from building up your own phenomenal, phenomenally successful spiritual business, as it were. Um, and he's a smart guy. He gave me some good ideas. I think... Among those, not time probably to go into all of them, but among those was the idea that the strongest way of reaching people is to encourage people to own and to share their personal belief in the form of witnessing, to say, this is important to me, I care about this, this has changed my life, I feel really good about where I am. Come, come join us, be part of our community. I think... Climate change communications, because it's so firmly based in information and knowledge, tends to think that we can just get people to go to a website or read a report or somehow they become part of things. We don't open up to people and invite them to come in, and we certainly don't hold our belief in that way. Well, I'm really convinced, (laughs) talking about conviction, I'm convinced that actually the way to shift attitudes, for example, in the harder areas, like amongst conservatives, is for those conservatives who do feel and hold a conviction on climate change to come out openly and witness to their conviction to say, yeah, I'm I'm persuaded of this. For me, the science is settled. This is important. So I think that is important. The other thing which I I took from that is the idea of a, um, the idea of encouraging a moment of change. And evangelicals do this a lot. Most churches do this idea that you can have a transformation, that things can change in your life, you can welcome in change, and you can acknowledge that. You can step forward, you can say, I am now one of you, that they all have rituals of conversion, 
I think we need that for climate change. I think we need a point where all of those people who are sitting in between who say, yeah, I know that there's a bit of a problem, but I'm not quite sure what to do or where to stand, but we enable an opportunity for them to step forward and say, yeah, I care, I get this, this is important to me. So a decisive life-changing moment. And I've been saying that things like the march, for example, that we had last weekend are really important for providing Probably the most important thing about them is providing the means whereby new entrants can make a life-changing statement with their own feet, as it were, standing up and marching with people to say, yes, I believe I'm convinced. Not to say that they didn't believe before, but then not to say that the people in the evangelical church who step forward and say, yeah, I believe, didn't in some way believe before. It's not so much about a conversion, it's about more about like moving things up a step, saying, yes, and now I'm going to go public. Oh, you know what? We could say in a completely, <laughs> completely different domain, like gays coming out of a closet, like that different thing. Like, yeah, you've been living this way for a while. You've been thinking this thing. But it's a point where you go out and publicly say, yeah, this is decisive. I make that step. And of course, that's also been a very important thing for the gay rights movement is encouraging people to make that moment of statement because, crikey, that's when change happens. When you realize that your friend or your working colleague or somebody who is in your community is actually one of them, then they're not them anymore. They're one of us, right? I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much uh, for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you so much. I hope anyone listening, if I could say, if anyone who's listening could take from this a couple of things that you can do. One thing, of course, is I'd love you to read my book. Don't even think about it while our brains are wired to ignore climate change. I don't, to be honest, care whether you buy it even. Go and get it from the library. But, but do read it, share it, because a lot of those ideas are there. The other thing I'd like you to do is to recognize that the most powerful tool you have at your disposal is your capacity to reach out and to share your conviction and attitudes of everyone. So think about opportunities you might have in your own life, maybe in your family, uh, your neighborhood, your friends, people are less certain, to just find a way of just saying, I believe this, this is important. I understand and respect your views. You can think anything you like. It's a free country. This is what I think. And being seen to do that and hold those views openly is a really important way to break the silence which often surrounds this issue. So let that be your act. And for me personally, I do that with somebody new every day. And every day I have a conversation with a stranger in which I somehow introduce this, even if it's just to mention it once. So think of doing that in your own life. Thanks, George. Thank you very much.